going for you, bro? How are you? Like, life is good? Fleas are gone? Yeah, you know, finally got rid of those fleas, but now the mites oh. are moving in. You know how it is. Shit. You get rid of one subdivision, and then a few more pop in, you yeah. know? So it went from fleas to mites, but I'm having a mighty good time. <laughs> oh, yeah, you know. Elephant ears are kind candy. Oh, which one? All right, well, well, tell us, man, what is your relationship with China? Like, what's going on there, bro? Oh, that's a heavy question, yeah. dude. Uh, You're just going to come out ask. and ask me that over Saturday or Sunday tea? I have to ask. I mean, come on. Uh, I mean, you know, personally, you know, I mean, if I had to describe it in a sound, I think that sound would would be a bit like this. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I, I feel like uh, that sort of says it all. Yeah, it does. I totally understand that. I got the gist of it anyway. But really, though, what do you think about all those ghost cities that China has been building for decades? Any thoughts of, you know, on why they were building these and have been building these? I mean, they don't even allow people to live in them. And the government people seem to, like, keep them in tip-top shape for whatever reason. Almost like they're anticipating a massive housing boom in the near future for people with a lot of those monies. Yeah, I mean, it does seem like prime ground for someone trying to escape one situation to just whoop, pick up and move over there. Like, the chosen few right. or, you know, like, somebody somewhere knows exactly what those are yeah, for. Yeah, man. Right? They, gotta have to, they have to be for something, especially when they keep them in tip-top shape. So here's my theory about these ghost cities, right? One day in the near distant dystopian future, the United States infrastructure is going to fail and we will fall right into a rapid decline in every aspect of life, right? The whole domino effect. And I've said it before and I'll say it again right here. Our society will be a mixture of Ready Player One, Mad Max, Escape from New York, great fucking movie, and most importantly, Idiocracy. Straight up, it's going to happen, you know? Dwayne Elizondo, Mountain Dew Camacho will be the president. <laughs> right, right. His just science, you know? <laughs> and, and everyone will be like, yeah, dude. Ow, my balls. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I can totally see why, you know, it, it looks like that's going to be the play. And then after that happens, everybody will bounce over to these ready-made cities and will be like, all right. Yeah, right. We're Chinese yeah. now. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So in the future, all of these important people, right, the rich and elite, they'll need a place to go once the United States has been turned in on itself, which is rapidly happening. Look at the homelessness. Look at all the migrants coming in. Just the streets are flooded with homeless people. You know, we're, we're seeing that all over the place. And I know a lot of people are seeing that all over the place. And yes, there's there's a lot of reasons why that is. But uh, they're also packing people in like crazy and getting rid of homes and putting in apartments. And yeah, it's it just seems all backwards to me. It just seems backwards yeah, to me. It does. It seems like it's it's being allowed to happen. It's almost being orchestrated. Yes. Yeah. So anyway, it's just a basic overview of what's happening in the United States, right? And it brings it back to my theory. Where will all of the Camachos go when the shit goes down? Uh... Well, they'll go to these ghost cities in China, Scott. Oh, yeah, you totally. I'm yeah. on the same page, man. Yeah. Sorry, I got lost there for a second. That's all right. Now get this. Right over my head, you know? I get this. In a recent report by interestingengineering.com, around 65 million properties in China are vacant. Oh, my God. Yeah, and check this out. For comparison, each year, about 3 million homes are built in Europe and the U.S., but China builds more than 10 million residential units annually. And sure, yeah, okay, China's population is something like 1.5 billion people, while the U.S. is something like 350 million. In Europe, like, what, 750 million. But these houses being built in China are completely empty, just entire cities completely 
empty. And the report goes on to say that there are an estimated 50 to 60 entire ghost cities that are completely unoccupied. They're not abandoned. They are simply unoccupied as if they are waiting for inhabitants. But why are they waiting? And who will be the inhabitants, Scott? Well, honestly, I think it's just like you said. I think there's people who know exactly what those cities are for. And I think when whoever it is that's orchestrating the whole deal gives them the proper signal, whatever that is or looks like, they'll bounce. And suddenly they'll be the occupants of these quote-unquote chosen cities that even though nobody's occupying, they're keeping in tip-top shape. I mean, they're keeping them ready, you know? Yeah, dude. And maybe that sign, the signal, will be the bat shape on the moon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it'll be the, yeah, it'll be the bat signal for sure. I'll remember that when I see that. I'll be like, I don't care that I don't know what this is all about. I'm going <laughs> over to China and I'm hopping in one of them cities, you know? Like, you're going to find me in that city, homie. Oh, shit. Speaking of Batman, did you know that Matthew Perry is dead, bro? Dude, one of the friends. One yes. of the in circle. Gone suddenly. I saw that. I did see that, man. What well, he uh, drowned in a heated pool, apparently, right? It's terrible. Yeah, yeah. It says that he, you know, there's some speculation on whether or not he might have been under the influence. I mean, one doesn't usually just drown in your own pool at home, right? Yeah, usually. Um, I mean, it does happen. But, yeah, maybe there's... I was going to, maybe there's more to it. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I mean, it's weird. It's a weird situation. Because I was looking at his Instagram, and it was showing pictures of him in the hot tub or pool that he was in, that he died in. And he's sitting there, and the quote, what does he say? He's like, warm water floating around the body makes me feel good, huh? Question mark. Something like that. That was the last Instagram. Yeah, cryptic, right? You know, like, not the most normal of, like, last Strange. posts. Suicide, post. maybe? I don't know. Murder? Um, Who knows, bros? Accident? Maybe. I don't I don't know, man. I don't, I don't know. know either, dog. I can't presume to understand the lives of people in the upper echelon, but I will speculate. I can definitely speculate. And I Endlessly. hope our listeners can speculate. And tell us what you think happened to Matthew Perry. Email yeah, let us. us know. Let us know. I mean, I know more information is going to come out over the coming weeks and, and whatnot, and then... Of course, the popular media will, you know, they'll tilt it the way they want to tilt it. But let us know your honest feelings, thoughts, and opinions on the subject. Yeah, maybe over on Facebook. Check it out on Facebook. Uh, yeah, whatever. Uh, but, you know, let's go back to the story. So the places of these ghost towns, right? One ghost city is called Tian Dusheng, and it's about two hours west of Shanghai, and it was built to support 10,000 people. And it resembles a miniature Paris, bro. No joke. There are pictures. And another city, Tongui Town, <laughs> I don't know, resembles Switzerland and Italy, like to the T, bro. And another resembles London. Another resembles Manhattan, New York. Shit's no joke. No shit? No shit. So the theory is that when the U.S. goes to complete shit, which it inevitably will, all of us poor people with the government cheese credit cards that they can turn off by the push of a button are all struggling to make shit work by forming separate clans and fighting each other to the death while those Camachos will be living in these fully operational cities in China, shaking hands and rubbing dicks. Oh, the old elephant trunk to trunk. Yes, exactly. And if you've been paying attention over the past decade or so, so many politicians and celebrities alike have been talking China up. Have you noticed that? They're all like, China's so great. Have you noticed that? Yeah, it's it's more like China is like so great, you know. Yeah, it's perfect. Chewing bubblegum, twirling their hair and shit. Even the men, <laughs> all the men, really. Yeah, I was talking uh, exclusively about. Men. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because the women are more like, 
China's so great. Yeah, they're like, it's okay. Yeah. But, you know, we grew up being told all about those Chinese communists being a danger to our democracy and all that bullshit, right? Well, we're not hearing that anymore. We're hearing the exact opposite. I mean, okay, check this out. America's favorite and your childhood crush, Scott, Whoopi Goldberg came out some years ago and famously said, quote, I don't really view communism as a bad thing, end quote. And the whole world cheered. Right. Spoken like a true, crazily rich one percenter. Um, but yeah, you knew she was my childhood crush. That's crazy, yeah. man. Did you yeah. did you I see my diaries. journal, dog? I, oh, read, I read your journal, dude. I thought so. Nobody knows that except for those pages. So, well, touche. Well, yeah, man. And did you know, Scott, did you know that China owns nearly 400,000 acres of land within the United States, which is more than the genocidal architect Billy Gates owns? Uh, that's a lot of land, bro. A lot of land. I did bro. not know that. I'm surprised by that. Yeah. But yeah, in 2021, a Chinese company bought a bunch of land near an Air Force base in Grand Forks, North Dakota, which, first of all, why would the U.S. government allow a Chinese company to buy up all this land right next to an Air Force base? That makes no sense unless the U.S. is in China's deep pockets, which, well, they are. We all know that but perhaps not as deep as in Canada's pockets. Because if you look at a map of Canadian-owned land in the U.S., you'll see that Canada owns nearly half of all of the farmland, which includes every U.S. state except Alaska. Whoa. Bro, our neighbors to the north? I had no idea. Taking over. Taking over silently. Yeah, we're living in their land. That's crazy. Anyway, that's my theory on what is going to happen in the near future. Most likely in our lifetime, when we're old and cannot defend ourselves. Oh, I'll be ready. And I'll be waiting. I'm sure you will. Face down, ass up. Boom. <laughs> Anyways. So, ladies and gentlemen, as you can probably tell by now, today we will be hopping into our floating rickshaw and traveling overseas to the sleeping giant, the Middle Kingdom, the Red Dragon. In other words, China. We will be talking about the disturbing case involving the deaths of an entire family of 10 people. An entire family family of 10 scott Ugh, no good no good at all and this family of 10 were murdered by a single man named huang zihang in the year of 1984 all in the same night what no way yeah dude but before we head deeper into the mysterious lands of china scott i believe you will be presenting the most important segment of the show tray portray oh pfft. dude i will be doing exactly that only better And now, ladies and gentlemen, please put those Velcroed slippers together, wiggle those gorgeously round butts like a tailless puppy that you just rescued from the pound, mere seconds from its official date of execution, which they know that shit. Jeez. Because this (laughs) is the segment you've all been fanatically licking your lips and tapping your one good foot for. That's right. It's time for Trey Portray. Oh man, I love this part. So do I, my friend. So. Our first story comes to us from www.theverge.com. Not the like the Verge de Guadalupe, but like the Verge. Like you're on the verge of something. I just feel like that's an important uh, distinction to make. Yes. March 11th. 2019, a security researcher, Victor Givers, stumbled upon a Chinese database, apparently tracking over 1.8 million women. And this database listed their names, their physical address, 
their phone numbers, and there was one other bit of information that they also listed, and that... What's that? My, my dear friend Coop is whether or not they were, quote-unquote, breed ready. Ex- excuse me? What? Breed? Breed ready? Breed ready. 1.8 million women that are breed ready. Okay. Continue. Absolutely. Yeah. Apparently, the leaker of this information works for a Dutch nonprofit, GDI, the GDI Foundation. Um, they don't know, they, or at least they weren't releasing, who is behind the database. But just that they're all real people, and these records are located out of Beijing, and all of these intimate details are listed about them. Yeah, I mean, that is crazy. insane. But after it was leaked and the information came out, the database only remained online for about one and a half days, um, and then it was closed down by 4 a.m. on that following Monday. Uh, but yeah, there was even information about the women's education and marital status, and I mean, whoa, dude, that's so insane. That is crazy. Yeah, there were even dude. some other fields that weren't included until later. You know, more information came out about this, but there were also fields like political or quote has video, and then they linked it to like these women's Facebook pages and stuff like that. So I mean, they were being intensely followed and scrutinized. That's fucked. Yeah, yeah. And the women in the database range in age from 15 to 95. So that that's kind of the most disturbing part, right? Because some of these people who are being scrutinized weren't, weren't even of legal age, dog. That's wow. insane. 15 to 95. Breed ready. Yeah. Okay. Pretty crazy. All right. So users on the Chinese on Chinese social media, of course, reacted to the database leak, and they compared it to the Hulu series. I'm sure you've heard of it, The Handmaid's Tale. You know, never heard of it. I don't know. That's the story where fertile women are considered to be valuable kind of cattle, and even like bartered as resources between companies, like or you know, countries and whatnot. Anyways. That shit's real. Well, that shit's real. I mean, man. that's the first hints of it. Sadly. So that yeah, more on real. that. More on that. Uh, our next story comes to us from www.dailymail.co.uk. A tourist died. Three others were injured when a 30-foot-high glass walkway shattered at an Indonesian beauty spot. Could you imagine, dude? Yeah, Damn. that's so crazy. Fuck no. Yeah, so feet, two not, fell through high. the glass. Crazy. Um this was uh, 10 a.m. on a Wednesday in, in Indonesia. But two fell straight through the glass. One was later declared dead. Others sustained minor injuries. But uh, two more at the time were thrown by the sudden collapse. But they kind of clinged onto the frame. Like, Could you imagine you're just holding on there just like, ah! you know, after this freaking thing. Sh- like, honestly, Jeez. they probably heard it cracking just like in the movies. No. Like, oh, my God. They're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Psh! and then it shatters and trying to run uh, but yeah police are investigating it and there's some video yeah. where it shows like tourists struggling to climb back up right after the walkway shattered and you see a uh, the camera kind of zooms in on a body of another tourist like having fallen through the glass it's just amazing that there weren't more people that were injured by that yeah thank god dude but bro man ever since those things became a thing you remember like they just started becoming like a pretty big thing i don't know like 10 years ago or something. oh yeah yeah everyone totally. was building them i just knew there would be some accidents dude people would be falling to their deaths i mean who didn't think that right yeah the first thing you think when you see one is uh, it's only a matter of time yeah yeah bro you know? I would never, never walk into one of those fucking things, man. Screw with that. You're playing with fire, bro. But you know what? It reminds me of that other glass bridge that collapsed uh, what, in 2021. Remember that? Oh, is that the one where the tourist was dangling? Dude, yeah. It was like a, 
you know, the last one was 30 feet. Well, this one I'm talking about is 330 feet, man. It's a 330-foot glass bridge that was in China, and there were super strong winds that day, up to like 90 miles per hour, and like people were still out there playing with death and shit. And one tourist, you know, he was like, well, we'll go out there and have a fabulous time in these heavy winds, right? And uh, the heavy winds just started blowing these glass panels right out of the bridge's frame. And there's footage of this, by the way. And the dude was like blown off balance and he fell through one of the holes, man. But he was lucky enough to grab on for dear life. Dude, so crazy. He was just dangling there like the Italian stallion and cliffhanger. (laughs) Yeah, good reference, man. Good old Sly Stallone. (laughs) Hell yeah, I love that movie. Classic, classic. Yeah, dude, really good film, dude, really good film. But the guy was desperately hanging there with one grip, one hand gripping the edge 330 feet up. But somehow, somehow. The dude was able to pull himself up and crawl back to safety. But seriously, this guy shouldn't have been there in the first place, man. Yeah, like not only uh, rolling the dice on the glass bridge, as everybody does, but secondarily in super high winds. Yeah, up to 90 miles per hour, this dude's out there. What are you doing? That's the crazy part for me. Like the moment I felt the first gust, I'd be like, nope, not happening today for sure. Dude, no. Anyway, all right, moving on. Last story comes to us from www.cbsnews.com. The main mass shooter. Oh, man. The main mass shooting suspect is found dead. After an intense two-day manhunt, the suspect in the case, identified by police as 40-year-old Robert Card, was found dead. Self-inflicted gunshot wound Friday evening. This is told by officials on the news. Um, this guy killed 18 people in two different locations about four miles apart at a bowling alley and a restaurant Wednesday night in Lewiston. And another 13 people were injured uh, during the event. So I'll kind of give you a little bit of a a rundown. So this happened, the shooting started on the, what, the 25th of October? 2023. Yeah, Uh, yeah. yeah. And we're now getting the report. Wednesday. Yes, we're now getting the report on the 28th. Um, But yes, it did happen on Wednesday. I mean, that's recent, bro. This just happened. That was just exactly. last week. I mean, that's just we're just what day is it today? It's yep. the 29th. And this Days happened ago. on the 25th. Yep. So. so we're still tr- putting the pieces together, but this is what we got so far. So 7 p.m., he begins shooting. Robert Card. Authorities get a 911 call. We got an active shooter, spare time recreation bowling alley at 6:56 p.m. One man at the bowling alley said he heard about 10 shots. 7:08, dispatchers get more calls. Got a shooter at Schmenegy's Bar and Grill. Semenegis. I'm just taking a stab at it. I've never heard of it. Not a pop, <laughs> not a popular establishment around here, but Semenegis. Semenegis. Love it. Love it. Uh, seven people killed at the bowling alley. One woman and seven men. At the restaurant, eight people are killed. Seven men inside the restaurant, one outside. All by gunshot. Richard Card was using an AR-style rifle. Okay. And then at 8.06, you see uh, the main state police told everyone, just stay inside. They put it up on their Facebook page. Hold up. Facebook? They they pulled the Nova Scotia. Remember that shit? Nova Scotia, they sent like three cryptic warnings through Twitter, and only Twitter. And what was the problem with that? Well, not everyone had Twitter, let alone a smartphone or a computer to access Twitter. Anyway, sorry. Carry on. Yeah, that was terrible. I remember the chick was like, well, we posted it three times. Oh, man. I don't know. And it's just like... Silsby? Dude, that woman. Yeah, Ooh. everyone else is slapping themselves in the head going, well, what's wrong with you? Um, but anyways, on that night at 8.53, the Lewiston Police Department said on Facebook that they were dealing with an active shooter incident at the restaurant and bowling alley. 
They asked residents to stay off the roads, allow emergency responders access, like don't go out there and look at what's going on. Stay in your homes, you know, but on Facebook, dog. Jesus Christ, man. Are they only using Facebook to warn the public? This is insane. That's all they use. So and insane. with the Nova Scotia thing, they didn't use their nationwide alert system right. called Alert Ready that blasts yeah. into every device. They just used right. Twitter, which is crazy. I mean, they probably could have saved lives, honestly. Probably. Lewiston Police Department, same thing, dude. But with, you know, Facebook, Facebook yeah. instead of Twitter. They didn't do the national alert system, which broadcasts to everything, just Facebook. So, yeah, it's pretty what messed up. What the fuck, man? Eventually, they would release images showing a person holding a semi-automatic rifle around 9.05. They released pictures of the suspect's car. And then by about midnight, the main, main state police said that they found the vehicle of interest. And that's when they kind of put the name out there. They figured out who he was. Um, and they were currently searching at that time. So, yeah, just you can kind of track it all on Facebook, which is ridiculous if you ask me. Apparently, Robert Carr, just a little facts, was enlisted in the U.S. Army Reserve. He was a petroleum supply specialist in the Army Reserve. He's seen no combat deployment since enlisting in 2022 or in 2002. Uh, but he did have some recently reported mental health issues. He was hearing voices. He threatened to shoot up the National Guard base. So, all right. The rest of what we know is from Mike Soschuk, and he's the commissioner of the Maine Department of Public Safety. And he said that the suspect's body was found by law enforcement 7.45 p.m. Friday near the river Lisbon Falls. And uh, he just said that the suspect died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound, so he took his own life. I mean, obviously, he knew the heat was coming. Um, but, yeah, he's he's gone. He will not be around to answer for his crimes. It's crazy. That's so sad. Well, yep, Absolutely. Our hearts are out to all the victims and their families, and uh, yes, sir, it's a sad thing, man. It sucks. And uh, oh, so to add to this, uh, maybe on a lighter note here, we'll end this on a lighter note before we end Trey Portray. Uh, I just wanted to give a little update on the Zuckerberg and Musk fight that was supposed to happen, and maybe I still will. But apparently, last month Zuckerberg came out and basically called the fight off. But here's why. He says that Musk has been stalling and making excuse after excuse, which makes it appear that Musk is only stalling and prolonging the whole thing. He's not taking it seriously. So Zuck said that he offered Musk a date, and Dana White of the UFC agreed to make it a legit competition for charity. And at first, Musk was all about it, talking about an epic location in Italy and making light of the entire thing. And about a month ago, Musk was texting Zucks about having a practice bout at Zuck's house, to which Zuckerberg said, no, nah, I don't think so, man. Um, then he said, you should just train on your own. And then get you know get in touch with me when you're ready to compete in a real MMA fight. <laughs> so that kind of hurt Musk's feelings, right? Yeah. And then earlier, you know, it was Musk's mother who has been trying to talk him out of the fight, you know, and she came out and was like, "No, this not fight's not gonna happen. No, no, no." You know, which is really cute and all that. But then Zucks came out on social media and said that he didn't want to keep hyping this thing up if Musk is going to keep stalling. He added, "Quote: You should either decide you're going to do this and do it soon, or we should move on." End quote. And after that post, Musk came out through multiple Twitter posts in response. And in one post, he called Zuck a chicken. What do you think about that? That is ridiculous. I mean, the, the guy clearly, Zuckerberg has not at any time given any indication that he's not willing to do this. I mean, he's a trained fighter. Of course he's going to do it. Yeah, you dude. know, like he understands the discipline that it takes to learn a martial art, put your skills out there, be humbled. And then gain success because of your hard work. He's like, yeah, dude, I'll I'll prove it to you. 
Meanwhile, Musk is just treating it all as a big joke, which is no surprise. Um, it's just yeah, all dude. been like this not serious thing for him. And he, he of course, texts without thinking. And uh, he, right, and this whole right. thing is born out of that. And, uh, you know, now here we are. And you can see, like, who is the serious one and who should just exactly. stay in his, you know, Tesla slash, you know, his whole organization and just keep working. Like, do what he does. Mark will do what he does. Go your separate ways. Time to call it. Call it what it is. Hey, sorry. Musk can't fucking own up and, like, he can't take it like a, like an adult, man. He's too childish. He's making fun of everything. He's not taking it real realistically. Exactly. It's not serious for him. And, you know, Zuckerberg, he came out and he was just like, you know what? It's, just, it's time to move on. Let's just move on. Let's just get over this. But Musk is just... Loading the guns, loading the guns, you know, throwing empty fists. Yeah, he's trying to, yeah, exactly. Just empty fists, that's a good way to put it. You see that, that new fucking car he built? This is like all metal, silver, just hunky. It's, it's so stupid looking, dude. Yeah, I know. He's trying to be on the forefront. I don't know who he's consulting with, but every time I see a new release, I'm like, ooh, that's <laughs> terrible. Yeah. This shit is horrible. Yeah. Terrible designs. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I know that's a pivot, and we're on kind of a ending on kind of a happier note there. But that is all for this week's Trey Portrait. By far the best they've sounded. What is that? Extra reverb or something? Yeah, I think they actually tune their instruments this time. You know, it turns turns out that can really help. Uh, I didn't know that. I'm actually impressed. Great job there. Was that your idea? No, that was Pinky Pete's. You remember him, right? From the Pink Piano. The Pink Piano. In uh oh, Lakeland, Florida. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wonderful, wonderful place. Yeah, dude. Hell yeah. Cool, man. So, Scott, uh, I wanted to do something fun today. Oh, well, I mean, I like the sound of anything fun, so I'm down. What's up? What's up, man? Yeah. So, through, throughout today's episode, I'm going to ask you to give me random words such as a noun or a verb or an adjective or an adverb, etc. And at the end of this episode, I will read an amazing Mad Lib based on the words you have provided to me. Bro. I love Mad Libs. Hell yeah, dude. I so love them too, and everybody does. So this should be fun. Yeah. So all right. <laughs> yeah. Uh. <laughs> so all right. Uh, so Scott, first of all, let me, let me get a person's name. Give me a name. Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat. Okay. Let's get started. So today's episode begins with a man named Zhang Lin. Zhang Lin was the owner-operator of the Eight Immortals restaurant, which was connected to the Eight Immortals Hotel. That was once a fairly poppin' establishment in the Ayohan section of the Nosa Senora de Fatima Parish in Macau, which was, at the time, a Portuguese colony that went back to 1556. The colony would later be transferred to the People's Republic of China in 1991. Zhang Lin opened the restaurant in the 1960s, but before that, he was running his business from a simple food stand in the streets of Macau, which is by far the best. And the dude put everything he had into his business, and he was a true example of how hard work really does pay off. Yeah, but bro, I mean, have you seen the videos of those Asian street food vendors, like, taking thrown away oil from trash Ooh, yeah. cans out in the streets to use for their own shit? Like, mm. have you, you know, that happens, right? You've seen that? 
Yes. Yeah. Gross as fuck, man. I have seen it. It's disgusting beyond words. But I mean, it's... Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, man. The food they make is still really delicious. Well, yeah, it is. But, but man... No, nah, I hear you. I hear you. I hear you. I love my street food, bro. It's the best. It's true. I can't argue with that. You, you're a hundred percent correct. Ooh, hey, this is a perfect time, Scott. How about give me a give me a number? Give me an age range. Uh, like anywhere between, you know, one and ninety. Eighty-three. Eighty-three. It is. And back to the story. The Eight Immortals restaurant was a huge hit with the locals and weary travelers alike, and the business became a financial success for hardworking Zhang and his large family, who would help in any way that they could. The restaurant wasn't a high-end establishment. It was a modest restaurant that was affordable to pretty much anybody. And the way he ran the business was a reflection of Zhang Lin's humble beginnings. You gotta love that. And his family lived nearby the restaurant... And by 1985, the family consisted of his wife, 42-year-old Chen Hui, Chen's mother, 70-year-old Chen Lerong, and one of Chen's aunts, 60-year-old Chen Zhen, Zhang Lin's cousin, 61-year-old Zhang Boleang, and five of Zhang's and Chen's children, who were 18-year-old Natalia, 12-year-old Stephanie, 10-year-old Zoe, 9-year-old Joanna, and 7-year-old Antonio, who was the only son. Interesting. I'm just kind of like a little bit fascinated by the name choices, but at the same time, like I know that's not super relevant to the story, uh, but I always do love a story that starts out with that hardworking like restaurant family. You know, everybody's working there, everybody's right, part of it, everyone's the part and of all it. that. Like even the seven year old, he's just running around chopping land, <laughs> honks up, yeah, he's just right, pigs, slicing necks, just just getting the, getting the full it. meal deal for sure. Scott, give me a noun. Really quick, give me a noun. Ball. Ball. (laughs) So, Zhang and his wife had a vice, though, like most people. But, I mean, with all that extra money they had coming in, they developed a slight penchant of doing a bit of gambling in their spare time. And like many gamblers, they'd lose some and they would win some. That's just just how it is, you know? You know what it's like. Oh, yeah, baby. Name of the game. Uh, I'll put, uh, you know, $100 on red. Uh, is that it? Is that all you're putting down, pal? Oh, uh, uh no, no, you're right, you're right. And, uh, let's see, let's, let's do another hundred, um, yeah, hundred dollars on black? Black? Is that all? Oh, no, no, that is definitely not all, of course not. Hey, come on, man, what, what do I look like, some, some kind of cheapo or something? Buddy. Uh, let's put another hundred on, uh, even, over there, yeah, in the corner, in the corner. Oh, my God, this guy. And uh, the odd, too. You know, yeah, let's, let's put another hundred on that symbol over there. You know, that's, that's odd, right? Yeah, that one. Yeah, for sure. This right here? Yeah, that, that one. That one. That's literally the number 23, buddy. <laughs> yeah, that one. Yeah, that, that sounds pretty good. Number 23. Oh, man. 23, you said? Yeah, it looks like a 23. I'll definitely, yeah, let's get some more money on that one for this sure. This is just fantastic. Oh, hey, man, Carl. Hey, come here and look at this guy, man. You yeah, got to look at this guy. There's no way I could lose. This fucking guy over here. Well, the best of luck to that guy. Yeah, I think he needs to take a look at his numbers again. <laughs> start from the beginning, maybe. <laughs> start, start from the beginning. Start with colors. Know. Go to numbers. Yeah, there you go. And then, there you, you know, go. then we'll, we'll go with shapes. And how shapes fit into shapes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Oh, but I'm sure he'll but do fine. A, he'll probably win everything. Uh, he'll, he, yeah, he's doing great. He's doing great. Yeah, he's, he's going to beat yeah. the house tonight. Yeah, for sure. 
Uh, but it's important to note that the people in this story, they weren't playing roulette or slots or anything like that. They had an addiction to Mahjong, which was and still is an incredibly popular game all over the world. Oh, one of my all-time favorites, and quite frankly, my go-to during any occasion. I mean, funerals, weddings. You know, it's what I played at my own wedding, in fact. Did you, <laughs> did you know? Yeah, uh, they I play it in. I play it in the bathroom. I'll play it online. Sometimes uh, I remember playing it in daycare when I was a kid or like the kid's graduation, birthday parties. Just it doesn't matter. I just get my phone out. I get it out and I start playing, man. Technology is great. I, for one, can say that there is no wrong time for having a good time. Oh, I like that. Yeah. You know, it's actually a fairly new game. This Mahjong that you speak of. Did you know that? Is it? I thought it was hella old. No, man. It's younger than the U.S. No way, dude. Yahweh. Yahweh. The experts say <laughs> that it's only around 200 years old, dude. That's crazy. For real, though. Wow. Hey, uh, how about a number, Scott? Throw me a number really quick. Any number. 76. 76 it is. Well, Mahjong, by the way, is a game played with tiles, usually made from ceramics or something similar, and they make a lot of noise, much like the game of dominoes, at least if you're playing with certain people. Gino, you son of a bitch. Now, nah, shout out to Gino. <laughs> Good old Gino. What's up, buddy? Good to hear from you on the day of my wedding. So good oh, to hear yeah, from you. Oh, yeah, dude. Man. He did call. That was awesome. That's true. Yeah, bro. A little Mahjong. Let's get together for some Mahjong. Yeah, yeah, man. Come on over. Um, but these tiles, they have numbers or symbols, and the goal is to be able to make pairs and sets and what are called melds or some shit. And the goal is to form four sets and one pair exactly, I think. And you can play it on phone boxes, too, but it's played differently from what I've seen. It's it's much quieter on the phone box. Oh, you don't, dude, you don't want the quieter version. You, you want, want the, loud the whole shit? experience. You got to click those things together. It makes it so much satisfying when you get the set you want. That is true. That from is your quote-unquote enemies or who you're playing with, it makes it so much oh, better. Oh, but... so it's like an intimidation tactic. Like, the louder you slap your tiles down? Exactly. You're just, like, clicking your satisfaction Damn. with every round. That yeah. Blows my but get mind. this. During the quote-unquote cultural revolution, it was actually banned in China. Can you what? believe that? Banned in China, the place of its origin. That's insane. It's hometown, but it, that doesesn't make sense. Absolutely. Between 1966 and 1976, big bad communism got up and spoke of the badass game. Meh, it's a waste of time. Mm, this mahjong, it's, uh, it's a waste of time, and, and it... It, uh... It's, uh, it's corrupt. Oh, it's corrupt. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's totally corrupt. And, um, it's, uh... It's also immoral. Definitely, uh, say that. Uh, yeah, it's immoral. Yes. And it's immoral. That was great. Really good job. We won't kill you this week. Oh, that is great news. Thank you, kind sir. Man, that's rough over there, dude. <laughs> oh, damn. Yeah, I got to say the right thing. Gary. Yep. Well, got to got to play along, so to speak. <laughs> I guess so. Give me a verb. Blanching. Blanching. Perfect. Love it. Well, let's move on to the bad guy of the story. Ah, uh, yes, of course. His name was Wang Zihang, but was born Chen Shuliang on the mainland of sprawling China, presumably in the 1940s or 50s. In the 1970s, he would emigrate to Hong Kong where he changed his name to Huang Zihang. <laughs> Ooh, man, hey, give me another verb really quick. Give me another verb. Double fisting. Love it. Wang led a life of crime, and just like Zhang Lin and his wife, he enjoyed some gambling as much as the next guy. 
But unlike Zhang Lin and his wife, Huang had no quarrels throwing in a bit of murder on the side. In 1973, Huang had gone to a man in Hong Kong that owed him some money. The amount is unknown. But when the man either refused to pay him or just didn't have the means to pay him, Wang decided to murder him. In his bid to avoid detection, Wang would burn off his fingertips after fleeing to Macau. And as we all know, fellow paranauts, one cannot entirely or permanently rid of their fingerprints without basically removing the entire chunk of skin from the bone, because even with severe intentional physical or chemical damage, after only three months of healing, the fingerprint will simply regrow as if never damaged in the first place. It's one of the main impressive qualities of the human body. Your identity never leaves you, bro. You have to go to like extreme lengths in order yeah. to not be identified, like extreme lengths. Yeah, but maybe if you really wanted to, you could get finger transplants. Oh, yeah, I've always wanted those ever since I was a kid. Just to change it up, but probably just like one finger so I can really throw off whoever's got my fingerprints. They're like, whoa, wait a minute. They're like the fingerprint guy like doing the analysis is like, whoa, whoa wait a second. I thought I saw something. No, there's no way I saw that. Oh, I totally did. Like, who is this guy? He's like multiple people. But it's, that's pretty weird, though. But it, it is exactly what 27-year-old Lin Rong did back in 2009. The Chinese woman was arrested by Japanese authorities for faking a marriage license, and it appears that she spent around $1,500 for a fingerprint transplant surgery that swapped the prints from her right hand to her left, or from her left to her right, however you want to look at that. Whoa, wild. Some people, man, they just got to try it out. They're like, I know what to do. I got the hack. I'm doing it. How about, hey, bro, how about an adjective? Throw me an adjective really quick. Discolored. Discolored. But anyway, the family-friendly game of Mahjong and all the gambling that goes along with it was exactly how Zhang Lin and Huang Zihang would meet. And while gambling is illegal in China, they apparently allow people to go to licensed parlors to partake in the parlays. Like <laughs> That's that? pretty good, man. Yeah. yeah. So typically... People throw down between $1 and $15, but as we can all imagine, there's a lot more than that exchanging hands. There's no way there's not. And there's no way the police aren't getting any kickbacks from that. None whatsoever. Right. And so Zhang and his wife would regularly go to these parlors or wherever and have a good time with their lives. Unfortunately, Zhang would also attend the same hangouts and do his own fair share of gambling. Over time, the three would get to know each other and form a relationship, and Zhang would often visit the Eight Immortals restaurant for some wholesome food and a little chit-chat, maybe some backdoor mahjong. Who knows? Say a place really quick. Any place. Fuddruckers. What is known is that one night, the three of them were doing a little of that gambling, and Zhang would end up losing back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back games, just racking oh, up man, the Oh, man, that's debt. a lot of backs. Yeah, bro. Yeah. And you know how it gets, right? You're just sitting there feeling pretty good. Maybe you win the first one, so you're feeling confident. Then you lose one or two, and you're like, nah, I got this. And you start taking more risk, right? That's just what you do. Oh, man. Every time, and you're like, you know what? I'm, I'm going to ride this out. Double it up. Double or nothing. Double it up. That's right. And so there you are, maybe like 2,000 in debt at this point. Not a big deal. It's it's not it's not a big deal. Oh yeah, and this back is when yeah, yeah, and this is when you try to break even by betting half because why not? It's only a fifty fifty percent chance, right? Exactly, dude. I mean, you're the gunner or you're not. Yeah. So why not go for it? You go for it, but you lose. Hey, not a problem. Not a problem. Everyone loses from time to time. 
Now the ball is rolling. You're feeling a tiny bit of desperation. It's becoming a real lake between those cheeks, right? Bulbous beads of sweat are forming on every hairy knuckle. You start to feel the heat in the room a little bit. Every turn of the breeze, you're like, oh, thank God. Yeah. But it's not actually the breeze. It's just your own frustrated breathing causing the air around you to change temperature and therefore the laws of thermodynamics permit you to feel the faintest ounce of relief. That's exactly it, man. It's incredible. And so, you know, well, this is a perfect time, right, to borrow some money from the person you're already losing to, you know, just do a little IOU. I mean, that's what I do. I just wait for the right timing. Exactly. It's all about the timing. Well, Zhang and his wife, Chen, would end up losing game after game of Mahjong to Huang and would end up owing Huang roughly 180,000 yuan, or the equivalent of about 71,000 American dollars in 1984, which is when the story takes place. I'm not going to lie, bro. That's quite a bit of cheddar. That's a lot. It's a big chunk. How about you give me a name of a place you like, or don't like? Preschool detention. Damn, Scott. You know what? Give me another place. Istanbul. Istanbul is it. Love it. Love it there. And after throwing in the towel, Zhang would tell Huang that there was no way he could pay that debt. And this ultimately led to an argument, which was eventually settled with a verbal agreement, that if Zhang was unable to pay the amount of the debt within one year, then Zhang's restaurant would be handed over to Huang. Adjective, Scott. Lumpy. Lumpy is fucking great. Perfect. And over the period of that following year, Zhang was unable to pay off the debt that was agreed upon, or he just refused to pay it at all. But regardless of how it panned out, Wang was unhappy with the turn of events. Later, Wang would say that despite the recurring debt, Zhang continued to lose bets to Wang in further attempts to dig himself out of that debt. Wang, being of the character that he was, had no problems collecting more debt from Zhang, probably knowing that Zhang would never be able to pay it off, and then the restaurant would be his. Yeah, he's thinking, well, that's just another uh, step towards the door of my new restaurant. Oh yeah, keep it coming. Yeah, and in the end, Wang said that Zhang and his wife owed him a total of about 220,000 U.S. dollars in 1984. Tough titties. So, let's get to the night of the murders. Zhang and his wife were certainly unaware that Wang had already murdered a man back in 1973 in Hong Kong, but it's probably safe to assume that they didn't even think Wang would ever go to the length of murdering them for the money they allegedly still owed him. I mean, nobody really expects to be murdered, you know? I suppose. I'm sure that there's a fair amount of people who have been murdered that had a pretty good idea that it was coming. And this brings us to August 4th, 1985. Oh, you know, that reminds me, uh, just, just really yeah. quick here. Uh, I'll just, okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to point out that on that specific date, okay. and, and I have no idea why I know this, but I just do. So the All Earth's right. moon was in moon waning facts. gibbous and, and was in the sign of Leo. It was 83.97% visible, and its age was 18.64 days on that day. Wow. It was also at a 28.48-degree angle from the horizon with a distance from the Earth of about 400,642.57 kilometers, or, if you'd rather, just under 250,000 miles. And oh, wow. on top of that... It rose at 9.22 p.m., and it set at 8.45 a.m. for a total duration of 12 hours and 37 minutes. Come on, man. Those are some fun facts, bro. 
I love facts, especially that set of moon facts from 1985. Yeah. Really incredible stuff. I love it. Thanks, man. You know, we always bring the best facts to the forefront here. That is our mission statement, dude. The best. We certainly only the best. do. We certainly do, and without hesitation. Absolutely. What's your least favorite food? Really think about this. Macaroni salad. Macaroni salad. Man, I love that. 100%. Can't really? stand it, bro. I hate Damn. it. Damn. Fucking love that shit. Extra macaroni. More macaroni than salad. Gross. <laughs> so anyway, on the night of August 4th, 1985, after Zhang closed the restaurant, Wang would stop by to attempt to pick up some of that money he may or may not have been owed. He later said that when he stopped by, he first asked Zhang to pay him 30,000 yuan, which he refused to pay. So then he dropped $10,000 from it, hoping that he would pay 20,000. Um, Zhang refused to pay it. He refused to pay anything. So that is when Wang then demanded that Zhang sign over the restaurant as they had agreed to the year prior. Again, Wang said Zhang refused. And whether or not that verbal agreement about the restaurant ever took place is not even fully known. It's just what Wang said. But this is when Wang lost his patience. After their arguments became heated, Wang grabbed a nearby wine bottle and broke the bottom off of it on a table, just like in a movie, when the good guy is about to fall in love with their co-star and female counterpart. Uh, you mean in real life? Oh, yeah, yeah, my bad. That's how you do it in real life. Uh, yeah, yeah, and if she runs, you know she's the one and you pursue, you know? Right, and if she stays? Oh, that's a major red flag, bro. She's batshit crazy if she stays. You need to start running at that point. Makes sense. Dude, of course it does. It works every time. I mean, that's how I got my current wifey, you know what I mean? I had to chase <laughs> her down about 17 miles Holy through shit. rough terrain until she realized I was the one and she stopped running. I mean, I probably told you about that, right? No, dude. Oh, no. shit, yeah. So I was an acrobat, bro. Uh-huh. I don't know if I mentioned that either, but I had to swim across a lake, and at one point, I even punched a bear square in the face just for fun as it was Jesus. grazing. I was like, oh, fuck you, bear. I just ran by really quick, and then bam, and I kept running. Oh, Didn't even know what hit him, but eventually, I caught up with my wifey. She was exhausted Ugh, and pretty horrified as well, but you know, as she was <laughs> shaking imagine. uncontrollably under some bushes, I gave her a hug, and I said, shh, shh, it's all going to be okay now. But, you know, she's wow. great. We're doing romantic. good. It's wonderful. <laughs> it's wonderful. That's so romantic, man. I love you guys. Both of you are the cutest human beings that I've ever seen. Oh, thanks, man. So right after breaking the bottle to use as a weapon, he grabbed Zhang and Chen's youngest child and only son, Antonio, and held the broken glass to his neck as he demanded that each family member tie each other up using ropes and other bindings and also to put gags in their mouths. The exact details are not entirely known, and everything we do know essentially comes from Wang's own admissions after he was apprehended about two years later. As he was holding the glass to his, as he was holding the glass to the son's throat, one of the hostages suddenly started to scream as they attempted to run out of the restaurant. Presumably, it was one of the younger daughters. Wang said that when this family member started to run away, he thrust the broken glass bottle toward her neck, slicing it wide open, killing them. He said that at this point, after having already killed one of them, he thought that he might as well kill all of them. I mean, just, I'm never going to claim to know the mind of one who murders, especially multiple people. But for his, from his point of view, it makes sense. You don't want a single person 
to get away and then be able to say, hey, this guy came to the restaurant and literally was threatening our lives, right? So he probably just reacted instinctively at that moment, but it started it all, right? It was the, uh, the unraveling of the sweater began. Um, give me one of those adjectives. Dry. The only details that are available about the killings is that nine members of the family were present when this went down. And once he was ready, he then lured the 10th family member, Chen Zhen, the aunt of Chen, to her own death inside the restaurant. He actually drove to her apartment to pick her up, saying that she was needed at the restaurant, and then brought her back, and then killed her there. And all 10 were killed by being slashed and stabbed with the broken wine bottle, or by strangulation, one by one. Everyone probably watched as one family member would be killed, and then another chosen until the last one. How horrible was that, man? That's just so fucked. How about another food? Um, give me your favorite food. Or, yeah, your favorite food. Spanakopita. What the fuck is that? That's like that Greek spinach and cheese phyllo pie. It's like phyllo dough. It's so good. That sounds delicious, bro. Um, but it also begs the question, like, how did he get them all and not a single one escaped? I mean, that would have taken some just crazy determination. Like, what a scene. Because you're not going to tell me that they were all just sitting there waiting to be killed. Like, no way. Yeah, and it's a good thing you point that out. Because there is some speculation that he had help, but it just wasn't determined. They, like, all evidence pointed to it was just him. Which is wow. it's crazy. It's crazy, right? Yeah, seriously, though. But once all ten victims were murdered... Wang put up a sign on the restaurant's doors saying that the business would be closed for the next three days. The next morning, the delivery guy would show up to do his regular rounds, but would find the locked doors and the sign, which caught him completely off guard because he had just been there the night before, prior to Wang arriving. And nobody told him that the restaurant would be closed. So this raised the delivery guy's suspicions a little bit. So he headed on over to Zhang's and Chen's residence just down the street to see what was going on. When he knocked on the door... He would get another surprise when it was Huang who answered the door. Huang would calmly tell the man that the family suddenly went on some sort of family trip to mainland China, and he wasn't sure when they would return. He also explained that in the interim, he would assume the responsibilities of running the restaurant. Of course, this raised quite a few eyebrows in the area, but there was no way to prove or disprove the man's claims. I mean, as far as they could see, he had the keys and the documents to the restaurant, and was staying at the residence. And it wasn't like he was an unfamiliar face either because he had developed a pretty good relationship with the family over a period of time. That's true, that's true. If anybody was going to just suddenly move in, though it would be jarring for the people that are used to one way of doing things, especially without any notification, he was in kind of a unique position because he, I'm sure he was around over those couple years with them being gambling buddies and whatnot, so... Right. You know? Yeah, he was there yeah, a lot. so... I, I could see it. But good on the delivery guy for just being like, um, what? <laughs> you know? Yeah, he was like, this doesn't, this is fucked up. This doesn't make sense. But how did Huang dispose of the 10 bodies? Oh, man. Yeah, the 10 million yuan question. He would go on to dismember all of their bodies using your typical dismembering tools, like a meat cleaver or two, possibly an electric saw. But he put all those pieces into black trash bags that he then disposed of in various trash dumps around Macau and also out in the sea. He told authorities that he spent a total of eight hours dismembering all of their bodies, but many don't believe that he could have done it alone in eight hours. I mean, I don't know. Some say it would have been impossible. 
I mean, I don't think it would be all that hard, right? You just have to have the necessary items and disposal bags. You dismember at each joint, you disembowel, and then chop the rib cage to some more manageable parts. Put all that shit into bags. I don't know. I've never dismembered a single body, so I don't know how difficult it is. But some killers that have, have said that it's a lot of work to do just one. They say there is a lot to it. So I don't know. Thoughts? Yeah, I'd have to agree. I mean, I, of course, I don't have any hands-on experience, so to speak. Um, but I would just imagine that a person who was capable of killing 10 or 11 people in one night would also then be capable of disposing of 10 or 11 people in one night. Because that's a, that's a Herculean effort of murder. That's a Absolutely. lot of work. So if a person could do that, they could probably do the latter as well. I'm just, just throwing that out there. Yeah, well, just don't know. So whether he acted alone or not is still up for debate. But one thing is certain. Four days after murdering the entire family on August 8th, a hapless swimmer out for a dog paddle, just dog paddling around having a good time of it, was unexpectedly nudged about the head with a human leg floating by. I'm not sure if that happened, <laughs> but I do know that his dog paddling was cut short when he would discover a few limbs laying along the beach. Now, I've read different accounts of what they found. One said it was four left legs. Another said it was four left hands. But regardless, multiple body parts were found on that beach on that day. I'll tell you what they find whenever I go out onto the dance floor. Two left feet. <laughs> you know, you know what I'm, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I do. I'm sorry, that was inappropriate. Hey, great dancing on the, at the wedding. Though. Oh, thanks, fun. man. Yeah, I feel like I like to cut yeah. a rug a time or two, but uh, yeah. Bro, yeah, we, we ripped it up, man. Crushed Totes. it. Totes. Crushed that shit. Anyway, speaking of which. Um, Scott, really quick. Give me some sort of liquid drink, or any liquid. Give me a, just any liquid. Mercury. Initially, the authorities chalked it up to ferocious shark attacks, and that's probably largely due to the fear caused by the 1983 release of Jaws 3. Oh, yeah, yeah. Let's see. Uh, what's what's that face? Uh, Dennis Quaid, right? Dennis? Dennis, Dennis Quaid. Yeah, yep, yeah, Dennis Quaid, man. And Simon Charles Pendered McCorkendale. Uh, what? McCorkendale? Pendered McCorkendale. Pendered. Right, right. Yeah. You know him. I I know him? Yeah, dude. He played Simon Doyle in Death on the Nile, the 1978 version, not the 22 remake with actor and self-proclaimed cannibal, Army Hammer. McCorkendale. Jaws 3. Yeah, I, yeah, really good film. It was pretty good. I love the part when Fitzroyce pulls the hero card as well as the pin to the grenade, right? Ooh, yeah. As the shark eats him. Oh, I mean, man, just yeah. classic, classic scene. For sure. Worthy of at least a few dozen Academy Awards or whatever the hell it is these days. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Did you know that the director, Joe Alves, you know him, right? He was the production designer for Close Encounters of the Third Kind and Escape from New York, your favorite film. Fuck yeah, bro. Yeah, I was a little familiar with that, and I do like that film. It's not my favorite, but it's a good one. And I'm not embarrassed to say that I am a fan of Snake Plissken and not so much of Roy Neary. Nah, not so much Nori Neary. He's, me, not, he's not that great. Me, myself, I'm more of a Slim Pickens You like Slim guy. Pickens? Yeah, any, yeah. any film that he's in, I'm, I'm all about. 
did you know that J. Allen Hynek, the legend behind Project Sign and then Project Grudge and then Project Blue Book and who founded the Center for UFO Studies and probably the biggest name in all of ufology, did you know that he had a part in Close Encounters? What? I did not. Oh, you know, now that you mention that, it does kind of ring a bell. Like, didn't he make like some kind of cameo or something up on the mountainside? Yeah. yeah, man. Well, first of all, he actually coined the phrase Close Encounters of the Third Kind. He coined that shit, bruh. And it would become the title of that movie. But he actually plays himself during the UFO landing scene up in the hills when everyone is up on the mountain watching as a UFO comes down. And they're playing that big keyboard piano thing, you know, the tones and sound and music. They're all universal, right? Remember that scene? Of course I do. And a little bit about that scene. The tuba player became extremely favorite. I couldn't tell you his, his name. But there's a huge tuba part in the score for that. So let's hear it for the tuba. I just want to shout yeah. out big tuba solo. So shout out to this tuba solo in uh, Encounters of the Third Kind. Absolutely. Yeah, so J. Allen Hynek plays himself, and he's the official-looking guy smoking a pipe as everyone stares at the UFO in disbelief. <laughs> you gotta have the official-looking guy smoking yeah. a pipe. And the running theory, dude, is that the movie was put out to prepare us for what is coming in the next maybe five years. But more on that eye-opening shit at a later date. Yeah, stay tuned, folks, for some eye-opening shit at a later date. Anyway, in the days after those first body parts were found on the beach, three more body parts were discovered on more shoreline along other beaches in Macau. By this point, the authorities realized after closer inspection that the body parts did not have jagged edges like you would expect from a shark attack. The marks appeared to be smooth in nature and caused by a tool of some sort. They couldn't determine what made the cuts at the time, but they knew that all these body parts appearing on the beaches were not due to shark attacks. They also knew that, with as many body parts as they had, there were more than two victims. While all of this was unfolding around Macau, Wang was going about his usual bullshit. He was running the Eight Immortals restaurant and collecting what money was coming in from that, and he had started to collect rent from one of the family's homes, and he had already ransacked the lens of what money they had stored away in their safe, and also took their important personal belongings, such as ID documents and the children's student cards. In the meantime, Concerned relatives would go to the police to make missing persons reports. Detectives would make a visit to the restaurant to speak with Wang, and he was as cordial as could be. And he even offered the cops fresh pork buns, as many as they wanted, which they savagely ate, but with such passion that it leads one to think that they were the best damned pork buns anyone would die for. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's crazy, bro. And some members of the police were quick to connect the dots between all the body parts being found around Macau and these new reports of missing people. People that made up an entire family of 10. And because of those connections, more attention would be given to the reports. Soon enough, Wang's name would be brought up more than enough times to be officially weird. And this would lead the police to check on his financial records and background. This, in turn led them to discovering those ID documents and student cards that belonged to the children. And that then led them to the Eight Immortals restaurant. Scott, give me an adjective. Saucy. The entire time it took for the police to catch up to Wang was about 14 months, and he was running the restaurant the entire time. They would finally apprehend him on September 28, 1986, as he was attempting to escape by heading into the mainland of China. As you can imagine, the criminal justice system in China has been reformed since 1986, and to the greater extent for the better. 
but at the time, it only took four days for Huang to be charged and convicted of murdering the 10 family members, which would be on the 2nd of October. Well, at least when they finally caught up with him, it didn't take long for them to convict. They are like, this guy definitely did it. He chopped up 10 people. He's guilty. He did it. He did it. And the day after he was convicted, October 3rd, Wang was hanging out by the water bucket over by where the fellow inmates also had a mahjong game set up for everyone's burgeoning entertainment. Wang was rather impressed with the setup, like a kid with low expectations on his first trip to Kmart in its later years. Wang was in awe of the handmade tiles that made the deafening angelic-like clinking and clattering that mahjong tiles are renowned for and for which copious amounts of letters are written to family members back home in the Deep South. But Wang's whimsical and shrubic attention was soon stolen by an even more impressive sight. That being the unavoidable set of thick eyebrows that seemed to dance like flotsam in the waves of a strong current in the South Seas as well as mimicking the motion of a teeter-totter in unison with the echoing foot-taps of the other men waiting for the turn to challenge the winner of the latest Mahjong game. Before Wang could avert his own wanting gaze of his intent eyes, of which he knew all too well were the open, blemishless windows to his vulnerable and naked soul, softer than an infant's disposition. But those two thick logs of eyebrows shadowing over two heavily recessed eyes below had fully taken over Wang's Wang, and Wang realized that he was nothing but entirely powerless to this man's unmatched charm and overt romantic conciliatory methods, which not only settled any question about the frailty that subsequently poured out of Wang's desperate childlike eyes, but also proved the unspoken but instantaneous understanding of who was dominant in this new and blossoming relationship that both seemed to admire. It was official, unofficially. Wang was taken, which caused anger amongst the crowd. But the story isn't over. We have to continue. Wang was mesmerized by not only the man's troubling eyes, but by the eyebrows, which did moves that even he wasn't aware existed at the time in 1986. As the music and the moment enveloped both Wang and the strange man, Wang seemed to melt as his emotions completely took him over. Wow, I must say, he's pretty taken with this fella. (laughs) He really is. He really is. And then, as the strange man who smelled of nothing but the worst musk and weak-souled ball sweat went in for a grope or two, or what Wang hoped would be a grope or two, but the man decided to take a different approach and beat Wang up really good. Oh, dang, dude. That did not go the way I thought (laughs) it was going to go. No. How bad was it? Bad enough that the guards would swoop in with frightening speed and strength, making a few of others do a bit of the poopsies, but... Who? Yeah. The the inmates going poopsies? No, man, the other guards. Oh! The quick... Yeah, yeah. The quick and frightening speeds that they came in at were so fierce that it caused even some of the most hardened guards to do a bit of the poopsies as it was happening in real time, which apparently happens more often than you realize. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, I've been there a time or two. Yeah, I think we all have. But these guards were able to swoop in like a bunch of heroes, and they had to fight off the attacking inmate who was putting up quite a fuss as he stood his ground over Wang, almost as if Wang was his property and possibly food. But the guards were able to implement their standard protocols to de-escalate the escalating situation, just enough for them to thereby rescue Wang from a certain violent death at the hands of his attacker. 
Upon that traumatic rescue, the guards would roughly bring him to a hospital so he could receive medical assistance in an effort to heal him up so he could be nice and ready for his next big fight. Man, and this is just like one day in. It's really not looking good for him at this point, for sure. That's true. But they'd heal him right up, pumped him full of electrolytes, and then they'd toss him right back into the hungry wolves. But this time, Wang would make the first move. He would attempt to escape his captivity, but quickly realize that the guards had the upper hand. And on October 6th, 1986, finally realizing that he was defeated, Wang would confess to the crimes and gave a detailed account of what he had done prior, during, and after the murders. After a couple of months of solid harassment by certain inmates out to get him, on December 4th, 1986, Wang would find a metal lid of some kind, maybe from a canned soup is what I'm thinking, or an old soda can tab that you could just you know pull off and have a tiny little blade, pretty much. Anyway, he took this lid or whatever, and he started to slice away at his wrists. But before he carried out the suicide, he wrote out a suicide note and an accompanied letter that was addressed to the Macau newspaper. In that letter, he explained his reasons for his suicide and clearly stated, emphatically, that his suicide was not due to the remission of his sins, but to find relief from the chronic asthma that he suffered from for years. What a what a interesting closing statement to make. You're not going to admit defeat at the hands of the people beating you up or the crushing weight of murdering a whole family. You're just going to blame it on the asthma at the end of the day. I don't know. I don't know if that's a, yeah, I just, baller move, I guess. <laughs> Dude, yeah. Blamed it on the asthma. Wrote a letter. I'm not guilty of murdering. I killed myself because of the chronic asthma. That's just ridiculous. Yeah. The shortness of breath is killing me. Well, it would be after his death that the police were able to lift some fingerprints, which matched the fingerprint they found at the 1973 unsolved murder in Hong Kong that Wang was responsible for and previously admitted to. So, like, did the authorities find and piece together all of the body parts of the 10 family members? Like, I'm not trying to be insensitive. I'm, gen- I'm genuinely curious because there were so many people. Like, there were 10 people, right? Yeah, there were 10 people. Two children, three adolescents, and five adults. Okay, yeah, I see. Yes. Thank you, I see. And they were all murdered by Huang and dismembered and disposed of all around Macau, right? Like, in trash cans out in the sea or along beaches and whatnot? Correct, yeah. Okay, wonderful, very good. Okay, and did the authorities find and piece together all of the body parts that were found? Yeah, I mean, they pieced together some. Were they able to say with certainty that all ten members of the family were accounted for? You know, before we get to that, we should talk cannibalism. Um, cannibalism? Sure. So as the story goes, Huang used the family's remains to make pork buns that he served to customers. Oh, yeah. no. Yeah. Really quick, though, what are pork buns? Oh, bro, pork buns, man. They are these pillowy, soft, steamed buns filled with the sweet and savory, saucy pork filling, dude. Very delicious treats. <laughs> right. Well, I guess my question remains. You know, did the authorities find every piece of the ten dismembered bodies and piece them all together as completely as possible? Minus the pieces eaten by fish or sharks or crabs or whatever? Or people? Okay. I mean, that's kind of what I was, you know, dancing all around, I suppose. But yes, right, or people. I mean, did the authorities come out and denounce that he had made pork buns with human meat? Is that confirmed or denied? Or Well, as far as I know, no. 
But Wang most definitely used the victim's meat to feed to people. If he was crazy enough to kill three really young children, two teenagers, and five elderly people, then yeah, I'm convinced that he was crazy enough to find alternative ways to get rid of the bodies, and also to make some money doing it. Ugh, man, that is terrible. Yeah, bro. So Wang said it took him eight hours to dismember ten people. Granted, there were a few young kids, so they were smaller, but still... We read story after story about how difficult it is to dismember one body and dispose of it. Not to mention having to clean up to clean up the mess afterward. So to kill and dismember 10 people and then dispose of the body parts and then clean up what would certainly be a challenging mess. I mention this because there's a lot of speculation as to whether he had help or not. Absolutely. I mean, the whole thing logistically would be extremely difficult. And we're not trying to be macabre or grim here. We're just debating the actual logistics of this true story that happened. And at any rate... There have been murderers who have used their victim's meat definitively to serve to unsuspecting people. Here are a few mentions. American serial killer Joseph Roy Metheny from Baltimore, Maryland, had killed at least two but up to ten victims, maybe more, but he mixed the victim's meat with that of pig's meat and sold it to people. Well, pig's meat is said to taste pretty similar to our delicious succulent human meat. I mean, that's what I'm told. On Ask Jeeves, of course. I love Ask Jeeves. So that's what people say, man, for sure. But check out Nathaniel Barjona from Worcester, Massachusetts, and later moved to a place called Great Falls in Montana, where he killed a young boy and used his meat to make food, including a stew with some weird meat that none of the neighbors could identify. And being the lifelong hunters that they were, they realized that it was not a deer that Barjona said he killed. Or check this story out which the Daily Mail published in 2014. Two brothers in Pakistan were selling human meat out of their house. They were bringing sourced meat to their house, processing it into viable forms of edible product, and selling it out of their shared house like a public market. The eyebrows started to raise not long after the nostrils began to flare from the disgusting smell of decomposition. And Scott, take a guess as to where they were getting the sourced meat. Um, I'm going to have to go with... The morgue? Uh, what about the morgue? All right, that's a great guess. So they were doing some of that stuff called grave robbing. Oh, yeah. man. Yeah, they were robbing graves and finding the bodies that hadn't liquefied or fully decomposed yet and bringing what seemed to be edible back to their place. Can you imagine just grabbing some legs and just like sliding the skin and no. meat off the bone because it's so decomposed? So gross. Yeah, man. So the brothers were eventually arrested and Scott, Something happened as a result that was a bit of a shock even to me. Pakistan officially outlawed cannibalism after the brothers were arrested and sentenced. Again, this story came from 2014, bro. Wow. Um, that's a pretty late abolishment of the practice of cannibalism. To these 2014. That's that's pretty crazy. And I can guarantee, man, like if you grew up being a cannibal, like what for whatever reasons, for like religious reasons or whatever. And then, like, they ban cannibalism. I'm pretty sure you're going to go out there and try to and get yourself some some human meat. You know what I mean? Yeah, it'd be hard to break, like, generations of cannibalism, you know. I mean, just, I'm speculating here. But, I mean, habits die hard, dude. And yeah. if you're in the habit of eating people and they tell you you can't do it, I think that'd be a tough one to break. If someone told me I couldn't eat pizza, I mean, I'm just using this as an example. That's a great example. For the rest of my life. I'd be going to Domino's the following day. You know, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I would be ordering it. Okay, really quick. Adjective. Breathtaking. Breathtaking. Love it. 
Or you just, you know, instead of a pizza, you just make your own bread and put all your stuff on there. Like different layers. Like so put the bread first and then put like the vegetables and meat and then put the sauce and then put the cheese. And they'd be like, it's not pizza, bro. It's it's not layered correctly like a pizza. Yeah, it's, it's a sauce flatbread. Yeah, like, come on. Exactly. Like, you, don't, you don't know me. You don't know me, man. But here's another one, though. Zhang Yongming was a Chinese serial killer who took the victim's flesh and sold it in a local market as ostrich meat. And that was after he had gotten out of prison for murdering someone else. Damn. Well, must have lied in his parole hearing, you know? So that's the first time I've heard that, you know, maybe ostrich meat kind of tastes like human <laughs> meat. So now we have pigs and ostriches. Are you making a, you making a grocery list? I'm making a there. grocery list. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, make sure to pick up some of that pig meat, ostrich meat. All right, check, check. Uh, but check out this last one, man. Jorge Beltrao Negramante was a Brazilian serial killer who had the help of his wife and other women who were part of this little cult they had going on. They would kill their victims and use their meat to make meat pies, which they then sold in the streets of Gironas, Brazil. Dang, I freaking love meat pies, bro. Dude, meat pies are the best. But... There are so many of these serial killer cannibals out there, man. Like, I'm telling you, cannibalism is alive and well, ladies and gentlemen. It is shockingly common. Yeah, well, this is definitely taking a turn. So, uh, but uh, we should talk about that more. All right, Scott, now I'm going to read that Mad Lib that you created for us, Scott. Oh, nice. This should be epic, bro. Yeah. All right, let us go mad. Let's see what we get here. All right. This is titled Visiting China, okay? Oh, no. Yeah. Now, I got this off of some wordlibs.com or the wordfinder.com. It's great Mad Libs thing. So, anyway, here is Scott's story. Oh, no. When Jehoshaphat was 83, her parents told her they were going on a trip to China. They told her to pack her ball. The plane ride was 76 hours long. She was blanching and double fisting. When they got to China, she was very discolored. On their trip, they visited Fuddruckers and preschool detention <laughs> and Istanbul. They ate, they ate a lot of interesting things, including lumpy macaroni salad, dry spanakopita, nice. and mercury. Hell yeah. Everyone had a saucy time. When it was time to go home, she was very breathtaking. <laughs> she said, can't we stay longer? And that's the Mad Lib. That's Scott's visiting China, Madlib. Yeah, wow, that's that's pretty great. Yeah, I'd have to agree with all those statements for sure. I think we should do more of these. Let's probably do more of these, huh? Yeah, I'm down. Let's That'd do it. Be pretty fun. Well, Scott, let's go ahead and close this show out, shall we? Well, I guess so, man. I just want to say that was fun. I had a good time. It's always fun doing great this time. with you, man. Great times Great and times. the pretzels that wayne dale put out today in the green room are oh, yeah. fire bro get you some dude get you some he makes some good pretzels but yeah always a fantastic time doing this with you bro wouldn't do it with anyone else Aww, you're the man shucks. and that voice just melts everything <laughs> okay buddy hey man All you right, read the emails pg you read the emails well <laughs> ladies and gentlemen if you're still with us, we thank you as usual. Please, if you would, click that subscribe button. And that like button and the share button. Definitely. And follow us on Twitter. Most importantly, follow us on Twitter. We love it. At Paranautica. And email us. Paranautica at gmail.com. That's P-A-R-A-N-A-U-G-H-T-I-C-A at gmail.com. Yeah, and maybe buy us a coffee, maybe. You know, help out the show. It'd be great. Hey, that'd be cool. 
Yeah, and you can help us out by spreading the word of the show to the world in creative ways. Oh, absolutely. That's a must. Yeah, it's a yeah, must. Yeah. Oh, definitely a must. And one way would be to follow people around very stalker-esque-like and then tell them you'll leave them alone if you can add one podcast to their library on their phone that they must listen to. That's always a great way. I highly recommend. Another way is to stuff a fatty potato in people's tailpipes in the cars. Just stick a little note on the potato or scratch it in with a knife, (laughs) saying that it won't happen again if they just listen to the Paranautica podcast. Simple as that. Works every time. Works every time. Well, folks, thank you. Thank you all. And until next week, keep it real. And stay safe doing it. Absolutely. See you next week.